0: Now we say smartphone, and at some point, we're just gonna pretty much mostly going back to just saying phone again, because every phone is a smartphone. It's kinda like when people say, what what are we gonna call driverless cars? Or cars? We're gonna call them cars? Yeah. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and... Jeff. McLure. There, I did it in my radio voice, in the words that you used to use. Are you satisfied?
1: Well, it's a sort of radio voice. It really wasn't... Properly cheesy radio voice. I I, I could go into the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday voice. There you you go, but it's not Sunday, it's Saturday.
0: No, but if you use a cheesy radio voice, it's always Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And you you can't just say it one time.
1: You talk way down in your chest when you use your radio voice. Yes. You sound very resonant.
0: So we are the personal wealth coach, even though we do talk about cheesy radio voices. We also mostly talk about economics, uh, bad puns, really bad humor. It is the dreary science, and somehow we are laughing about it. Uh, This is the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, We are going to talk to you today about economics in general, personal finance, what's happening in the market, in the economy, all that good stuff. Um, But in in the beginning of all that, you can't hear us talk about stuff without first telling you not to believe anything we say. That's correct. It is disclosure time. I say. They don't say anything about not believing us. They do say things like, this is the personal wealth coach, which is not just the name of this program. It's also the name of a firm that's registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission as an investment advisor. So what does that mean? It means they do that we, as the firm, when we're not on the air, do fiduciary investment advice. What does that mean in the best interest of the client? Well, we're registered with the SEC. What does that mean? Well, it means that we filed papers. It does not mean that the SEC has somehow anointed us with their pleasure. Uh, they don't do that. Anybody that says that they are approved by the SEC is saying something incorrectly. The SEC has a policy of non-approval. That's, if anyone ever says a government agency approved of me and they're not talking like auto tests for crashing... Probably probably a lie. So, um, what is fiduciary? Fiduciary means in the best interest of the client. It means uh, the one word English definition is steward. I like that definition probably the best. But we can't be a steward for all of you on the air because we don't know all of you. And even if we did know all of you, if we did it on the air, we'd be violating privacy horribly. So what are we doing instead of fiduciary
1: advice on the air? We're doing education. The information we report on this radio program, which is educational, of course, and not advisory information. Wait a minute. I I just said that. You're you're repeating myself. I know I'm repeating a disclosure, but that's okay. The SEC does approve of repeating disclosures. Okay. The information that we report on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. there I said it.
0: You did say it, but you made no warranty or guarantee that it was accurate what you
1: said. That's right. All right. Nothing we say is warrantied or guaranteed. And we guarantee that. We could say past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Shares may be higher or lower when bought than when sold.
0: Yep we could say that but we won't because that would be a waste of our breath but we did yeah, say it saying that we wouldn't that we could say it
1: but it's interesting
0: all right so what happened in the market this week that's a good place to start when talking about the economy not much not much well a lot happened okay. but it amounted to nothing
1: well 57 57- billion dollars worth of money was taken out of the market and went to cash. about $10 billion went in through individual from individual investors into equity funds, which is kind of unusual. That's the highest cash flow out of the market that we've seen since March of last year
0: in a month and on a weekly basis. Yeah.
1: On a weekly basis. Um, we saw it was an interesting week because we saw multiple high record earnings reports from Microsoft and Apple and Google. Well, not Google. It's not called Google anymore. It's called Alphabet. alphabet. Because yeah, why but not? it's still it's still Google to me. Yeah, it's G O G is the is the stock symbol, but it's Alphabet, which doesn't make any sense. But nothing makes makes sense in that area. But um,
0: they we changed also their, got name. Official, we also change got their name. They're allowed to change
1: their Official that the. United States economy is growing at a rate not seen in 40 years. In 1984 was the last time we saw the economy growing at this rate and that was in the Reagan revolution, which is sort of fascinating. It got up about 4,200 for record close on Thursday and then it dipped back down a little bit. And it dipped back down, interestingly enough, on news that record earnings were being reported by those companies on Friday, on Thursday and Friday. Uh, so it ended the week up 0.02%. Didn't go anywhere. I mean, if you started at the beginning of the week and you went to the end of the week and you said, how much does the market move? It move 0.02%, which is effectively within the noise range. But it's up 11.32% for 2021 with the third of the year gone by. If it does this all year, it'll be up 33%, but it probably won't do it for all year. So don't worry. Don't take that as anything serious. Good news from our position, because we're value investors, is the rotation from large-cap growth stocks like the ones that had record earnings just now towards smaller value-based stocks appears to be continuing because the CRSP mid-cap value index rose nearly 1%, actually 0.97% if you want to be exact, for the week. It's up 18.6% for the year compared with 11% for the S&P 500. So it's interesting that the smaller companies, the smaller value-oriented companies in the S&P 500 are providing a very good basis for the rest of the market. And money seems to be rotating in that direction.
0: Just to, let me throw this in here because talking about value and growth, the large cap and small cap, if you're a first-time listener, that may be a bit confusing. Value means that the company, if you sold all of its assets and paid off its debt, we're not talking about the market valuation, but actually what the company owns, they'd be worth pretty much what the market is valuing them for, or maybe maybe more. Versus a growth company, which is being valued by the market on its efforts and success in growing its profitability a lot more than what it owns. So if you think about uh, what does Microsoft own, well, they're moving into owning a lot more physical assets than they used to. So there's a transition happening here. They're still growth oriented. They're still a growth company, large cap growth, but they're owning more. So they're kind of mixing themselves into the value category, except that their valuation at the market level is just so high that they're still totally being valued on their expected earnings growth, rather than what they own, versus a place like General Mills, which is valued a lot more on the recipes that they own and the name brands that they have and the shelf space they have in grocery stores, physical assets. So that's more value-oriented uh, versus growth-oriented. So. Back to you. I wanted to make sure that was clear because
1: otherwise we were going to lose everybody right at the beginning. That's true. People people eat a certain amount of breakfast cereal every morning and they don't change very much. So there's a pretty steady valuation for General Mills. Let's see. Yield on the benchmark US Treasury note rose to 1.626% now. That doesn't sound like much in the interesting way of news. It only rose a little bit for the week. The important thing is to remember that it was 0.92 at the beginning of the year. So in three months, it's gone from 0.92% to 1.626%. It's also good to remember that a year ago, the 10-year Treasury note was only yielding 0.61%. And the lower the yield, the higher the value of the Treasury note has risen in the market. And the lower it gets reversed, the higher the yield goes, the lower the Treasury note market value is. And so it's interesting, at this point last year, there was a big cash flow out of stocks into treasury notes. If you bought a lot of treasury notes, which forced the interest rates down to 0.61%. Had you bought a 10-year treasury note a year ago, after having probably lost a lot of money in the stock market, because you got out pretty close to the bottom, and you looked at your value of your treasury notes that you bought a year ago today, they'd be down about 10%. So you first lost conceivably as much as 20% of the market maybe even 30% of the market and you turn around and lost 10% more in Treasury notes, which is why we say market timing generally doesn't work. Getting in and out of the market bailing out when the market goes down is generally a very bad idea. And that's another example. Um, let's see. Oil, West Texas Intermediate rose 2.3% for the week which is within the noise range again, which in its normal trading range up to $63.48. Now you're seeing that increase in price of oil at the gas pump as the price of gasoline goes back up in $3 ranges. But it's not, it's not high enough at this point that it would damp out the economy and it's not low enough that it would hurt the oil patch, the oil business. So it's basically, it's a Goldilocks range for oil right now. So everything looks really good in the, in the market in general and in all the various markets. By the way, there was an interesting Article in Morningstar that suggested that some of the Fang stocks—I won't say which ones—but well, let's say, for example, Apple.
0: It's not even called Fang anymore. It's like Faan because but, uh, the G and Fang became alphabet.
1: With the new earnings reports and the projected earnings that uh, several of them—and you can look up the article in Morningstar if you subscribe to it—were not overpriced at this point. They gave them high star ratings. Because they're high earnings, so apparently some of the run-up in the market that we've seen—if not, certainly not all of it—has been justified by the high earnings that these guys turned in. The average earnings this week from the tech companies that reported were up 51 percent from a year ago.
0: Yeah, and this is this is a really good way. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about Tesla, and and we don't get us wrong—we still think these companies are highfalutin, and, and they are likely to take a, a dive at some point, but it may be a while before they take that dive. Tesla was at a price-to-earnings ratio of 1,066 just over a week ago. What does that mean? It means that the last reporting earning, reported earnings would take 1,066 years to pay back the price of one share. One share's earnings would take over 1,000 years to pay back the price of the share. They reported their earnings, and now the price-to-earnings ratio is just over seven hundred. Well, that still seems crazy, out of reach, unreasonable.
1: But it's but, not a thousand.
0: But it's not a thousand, and the fact that they had such a big increase in earnings there means that there's a demand for what they're producing. There's some other stuff to mention this in passing that Microsoft's in the process of going from a position where it didn't have a whole lot of physical assets. And over the past half a decade or so, they've gone to a lot more physical assets. Their Surface line of, of computers has really blasted off and taken over a big chunk of the market. They've made pretty good computers. We've used a lot of them. After about three years, their batteries have started really messing up in our office. So we're like, I don't know if we want to go back to Surface. So this is something that happens with meteoric growth They got to focus back in on what's important, which is quality and good service and all of that. We'll see what happens there. The other end of where they're going, and this is mentioned in our newsletter, both Amazon and Microsoft had something interesting in their most recent earnings report. I think it's far more than interesting. I think this is amazingly vital for what we consider the future to look like. Amazon made more profit off of its server line.
1: Not more, just equal.
0: Just equal, yeah, equal. Right at. Uh, Microsoft made more profit off of its server line than off of Windows. Oh, that's right, that's right. Amazon Windows. Amazon uh, made more profit, or at the same level of profit from its servers as it did from all of the sales that it's doing on Amazon.com. Think about that for a second. What did their servers do? Well, Rackspace, Microsoft and Amazon are the leaders in servers on the internet. When you talk about going to the cloud, there are just a few big, big players out there. Uh, Apple is trying, but they're nowhere near the market share of either Amazon or Microsoft. Anytime you hear Azure or AWS that's Azure's Microsoft AWS, is Amazon. Those are the server platforms that almost every website that you go to online is hosted on those things. They have, you know, they used to talk about server farms. They have server farms scattered all over the country that are sharing information with each other constantly. And this is why it's called the cloud. If one of those server farms goes down, it doesn't affect your information because it's shared so nicely across everywhere. It's sort of a blockchain concept in the cloud. And people are like, blockchain, isn't that cryptocurrency? No, it's just a way of accounting for data and for money. So these big companies, Microsoft, when you say, what's Microsoft? I think most people would say, well, it's Microsoft Office, it's it's Windows. I doubt that they would say, it's my favorite website that I go to when I click on stuff, because those are hosted on Microsoft computers uh, that are owned by Microsoft. So the business model of these major corporations is in the process of changing drastically. That's what we're seeing in the news right now when we're talking about things are looking good in the market, things are looking good for the future. We This could be a complete, uh, Yogi Berra said it very well, very well, the future is just not what it used to be. That I think that sums it up. Things are changing yep. and they're changing in a way that looks like a better way of revenue. And this is something, there's a big thing moving Uh, It sounds like I'm ranging across a lot of topics, but they all interconnect. There's a big movement in Congress right now because it was being pushed by the Biden administration, but it was being pushed by the Trump administration before that, and then the Obama administration before that, and so on. You can go back several more presidents on infrastructure. And there's always, anytime infrastructure comes up in the debate, there's this massive debate about what infrastructure is. Like, it should only be the traditional infrastructure. And from an economic standpoint, that would mean that we would only ever do dirt roads. If we went truly traditional for infrastructure, the Romans would never have made a massive empire. Because they had a new form of infrastructure that was better. No, the reason why I said it sounds like I'm jumping from topic to topic is that infrastructure for us, at least as much of the trade that takes place in retail in just a few years, online trades of the same products are going to take over at least as much market share. It's already happened in, like if you say the stock market, there's, when you kind of do the air quotes around retail trade, it doesn't mean what it used to in the stock market. Retail trade used to be you had pieces of paper. They were usually pink because they were third copy on the back of the carbon things. And so they were called the, the pink sheets, the over-the-counter market. And it had a lot of phone calls. I remember doing these phone calls, calling different brokerage firms and seeing if they had anybody that wanted to buy this share of some over-the-counter traded company. They're not as big as the really big ones that trade on the floor. The NASDAQ kind of grew up to start organizing that and taking it online. Now, you don't do paper trades on anything anymore when it comes to stock trades. There's no paper certificates. There's no pink sheets. None of that exists. So the concept of retail versus online trade for things like money and things like ownership, it's already far, far, far more of that takes place virtually than in physical. In fact, almost no physical. And in the future, we're moving more, and pandemic definitely shot the the rocket engines on this, toward buying more things online, whether that's groceries or uh, a refrigerator or a car. I mean what would you what can you not buy online anymore? Well you can't buy a plumber. <laughs> they actually have to show up. But that tells you something about where we're going and why infrastructure needs to be looked at differently. If 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 we're not careful if we just get down into the nitty-gritty this is only traditional, well then the railroads never would have been built. We would have just been building canals, trying to build a canal across the country. Well, before that, the canals wouldn't have been built because it wasn't traditional. Infrastructure goes into, by its very nature, is if we take apart the structure, what's inside it? In fracture structure. You put those together. These are the Latin pieces that go together here. If, if, if it's inside the structure, and it's the structure is how we make money, how our economy works, how we feed ourselves, how we get from one place to another, the structure of our economy is the infrastructure. And that means we need to have good bridges because it's really hard to drive freight across broken bridges. There's lots of falling and splashing and nobody likes that. So having good infrastructure, it's obvious, well, we gotta have good bridges so that we can get the materials that are purchased, however they're purchased, from one place to another. How we purchase them has now become part of the infrastructure. So when people, have, and we got a lot of questions about this last week, about is actually getting internet connection out to rural areas when Elon Musk is already doing the satellites out there, is that really something that the government should be worried about? Is that really infrastructure? Well, is it a, a method of transporting money from one place to another to affect a trade, or to, to affect business?
1: Well, yes. its infrastructure it also tracks product from one place to another because when you people out in the in the rural area are not buying a lot of digital product because they can't they don't have the infrastructure to do it
0: that's right and on add on top of that say you've got a shipment that's going across rural america either in a truck an airplane whatever it is how do you track that shipment to make sure you know where it is at any given point if they drive off into the middle of West Texas you lose cell phone out there still. There's no way of tracking that, and that seems so barbaric these days. you mean, you can't have somebody zap from a tower or from a satellite somewhere and know exactly where you are at any given time. No, there's places in the United States where you still can't do that, and that limits the business opportunity, not just for that location, but for traveling through that location. The more connected we are, the better the business goes. There's obvious dangers that come with that for privacy and other things and that governmental watching and so on. And I, and I recognize people have a lot of fears in that area. I would say those fears are well-based, but we can look around at other countries that are doing a whole lot worse than we are and say, we need to stay afraid or we're gonna look like them. Uh, and I recommend that people, if you're nervous about the government watching us and so on, we'll just keep voting. Because that's why we've got a government that's less intrusive than a lot of other governments. It's still more intrusive than others. So just, just keep that in mind. Um, we have some questions. Do you want to move to those?
1: Sure. Uh, John asked about target date funds. And I wanted to, and he asked the question Do are target date funds fairly new? And are they really self correcting in a market crash? I think the article is a little misleading that he, that he circled from the Wall Street Journal. Target date funds are balanced funds that become gradually more conservative. They go more to bonds and less to stocks as you get older, which means they expect that lower expected returns as you get older. If that fits you, that's fine. What it does is it keeps the dips out of the out of your individual portfolio. Is the severe dips, not all of them,
0: and, and sometimes and, not even the severe dips, just some of the severe dips.
1: But the the article referred to the fact that uh, market crash causes market. It helps make market crashes self correcting. They don't self-correct. In in the market crash we had in in uh, early in 2020, and the market certainly the market crash we had in 2007 through 2009, target date funds dipped as far as anything else did. What they do have an effect is more money that goes into target date funds. The more that since the target date funds, let's say it's a sixty forty balance where there's sixty percent stocks and forty percent bonds, if the stock side of the portfolio draws 50 percent they have to buy enough stocks to bring it back up to 60 percent so that's so, that, from, so they're buying stocks while the market goes down which helps the entire market because it's somebody somebody is out there buying stocks as the market falls and they're mandated to do so now
0: so long had, as they're t- getting new money going into them yeah
1: well no they, they actually have to rebalance that's right. the point of the article now this is the problem. Target date funds are relatively new, and we have not seen what happens in a target date fund in a sustained bear market like we had in 2000 through 2002. It was a sustained bear market that took the S&P 500 down 50%, and it just kept falling and kept falling. Very similar to the one that we had in 1973 through 75. In those markets, buying into the falling market was a deadly it had a deadly result because as as the market fell, if you kept rebalancing the way target date funds have to do, it would have have eaten your value up because you kept buying and it kept falling and you kept buying and it kept falling. It's really target date funds are are certainly far better than trying to guess it yourself. If you don't know what you're doing and certainly better than the average investor, there's a lot of value to target date funds, but they've not been tested in a sustained bear market.
0: Right. And, this is, some, this is a test that we apply to any time we look at an investment. This is a very broad-based test taught to me by Elder Baldy years and years and years ago, probably 30-plus years ago. The big question is, what would happen if everybody did it this way? And that wouldn't be good for the market if everyone bought target date funds, it wouldn't be good for the market. Just like if ever, and that, there's some complicated reasons for that. I'll give you a simple reason for a different one. If everybody bought an S&P 500 index fund, if everybody did it, wouldn't would, that seems like it'd be great. That means the whole market would rise. It would be good. Well, the S&P 500 isn't exactly actively managed. Uh, the, the, the 500 largest by capitalization companies that have had four quarters in a row of, uh, in order to get into it, you have to be one of the 500 and have four quarters in a row or a whole year without negative earnings. So then you get added to the S&P 500. Okay. What would make you go out of the S&P 500? Well, if your size got too small and you started having some negative earnings in a long period of time. That's a much more political process on getting out of the S&P 500. Getting in is pretty straightforward. There's some clear rules that you follow these rules. You can get in if you're big enough. Okay. If everybody bought the S&P 500, the money that goes as an index fund, the money goes in there and buys proportionally based on the size of the company. So the bigger the company, the more money would go to that company in this index. Okay. Okay. So what's wrong with that? Well, if everybody did it, it wouldn't matter what the internal earnings of these companies were, whether or not they were profitable. You would just be purchasing them because they're bigger. And if you look at the definition of what communism, communism is, it falls very nicely. If you're just splitting it up by size rather than by merit, you're just socializing investing, which doesn't give any benefit to the innovators. The same sort of thing, only much more complicated happens in a target date fund. So both the S&P 500 index positions and target dates are fantastic positions as long as a, a relatively small percentage of the market is using them. That's something important to understand. Target dates and index funds are designed to be low cost and and not exciting. They're designed for people to put their money in there and then just leave it alone. And when we look at the studies on market behavior, just being committed to leaving it alone somehow allows their portfolio to do better than about 90% of their peers that are in the same positions because they're not leaving it alone. They keep changing their strategies. They usually change their strategies at the wrong time. Oh, the market's down. I need to go over to this other thing that didn't go down. Well, that means that you just sold low and bought high.
1: It occurs to me that we missed something at the beginning of the show. What's that? We missed saying that if you wanted to communicate with us, you can contact us by email at either jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com.
0: Yeah, that is in The Personal Wealth Coach or Tango Papa, whiskeycharlie.com. Yes, you are correct. There's another question that's sitting out here. Uh, Self-correcting is something we can come back to because there is some self-correcting that takes place in the market. And target dates and index funds both do that. Um, it doesn't mean the drop doesn't happen, but they do correct to some extent. The other question was on valuations. Um, now, we've talked about this, but not for quite some time. When we're talking about the price to earnings ratio, there are, I don't know, probably, I won't go to a specific, dozens at least dozens of ways of calculating price-to-earnings ratio. People are like, what do you mean there's dozens of ways? I see it reported and it's reported all over the place. If you follow where it's being reported, there's not really a consensus on how to report it. You may get something different from Bloomberg than you get from the Wall Street Journal because they may be looking at annualizing the last quarter's earnings instead of taking the last 12 months of earnings. Or, Or they may be um looking forward 12 months on the estimated forward looking price to earnings or they may be doing something like uh, Dr Schiller did now Dr Schiller's won a Nobel Prize he didn't win it for the price to earnings ratio he also has a, uh, a a real estate index that he helped with the Schiller price to earnings ratio looks back at the average earnings over the last decade okay and and then says if if the market is way above that, that could be an indicator of future collapse. And there have been a couple of instances in the past where it looked like it was a really good warning sign and a lot of instances where it didn't warn about anything. There's some problems with it that he has admitted that if you look at the average over the last 10 years, it doesn't really take into account any new plans at the company level, any new technology that's been developed. So it doesn't work well for individual company pricing. It works better across an average, and it doesn't work consistently there. Uh, if you looked at Apple before Steve Jobs came back to it in the early 2000s, and you applied the the Schiller PE to it, it would have been an obvious "don't ever get into this company." But it didn't take into a fact that into account the fact that Steve Jobs, who's this, who has been this great creative mind. Left Pixar, which became a, an amazing success. After leaving Apple, which had been an amazing success, he left under duress, came back with begging, and from that we got uh, iPods, which nobody has anymore. But that led to iPhones and iPads, and this amazing technological innovation that occurred. Now everybody has smartphones. Well, there, it didn't. You didn't say smartphones for a long time. You said iPhone. Now we say smartphone, and at some point we're just going to go pretty much mostly going back to just saying phone again, because every phone is a smartphone. It's kind of like when people say, what what are we going to call driverless cars? Or cars? We're going to call them cars? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the valuations, the different ways of measuring price to earnings, the basic approach, we mentioned this when I was talking about Tesla earlier is if you take earnings um, and you divide them into the price, you're basically saying, how many units of earnings will it take to pay back my price? If you think about a rental house, you just bought a rental house, it's $100,000 and it pays you $10,000 a a year in rent. Well, if you divide 100,000 by 10,000, you get a 10. So the price-to-earnings ratio is 10. Now, that's a really decent-sounding house to buy, but there's other expenses that go into that. So you have to make sure that your earnings are being calculated correctly.
1: That's $10,000 in net earnings. In other words, after you you pay for everything that you got to pay for on the house, if you clear $10,000 a year on a $100,000 house, you have a PE of 10 on that house.
0: And that sounds like a great thing because you still have the possibility of appreciation on the asset of the house and you get this income that's paying you back for the purchase of the house. So when you're looking at a corporation, it's not really a different calculation than that. You just need to make sure that the earnings are all net of all the expenses. Because you can have, look at the sales in this company, they're just record-breaking sales and they could still be not making a profit. So earnings are, profits and it should kind of be the pp ratio the the price to profit ratio but
1: yeah but we don't want to call it pp
0: no pp is one of those things that i don't allow my daughter or son to say that at the dinner table so i wouldn't feel comfortable saying it over a desk to a client
1: that makes sense to me
0: ppp is different because that that was the paycheck protection program so I I did warn everyone at the beginning of the radio program that we make bad puns, so
1: it well, wasn't a bad pun. It was just a pun.
0: I think to most people it was a bad pun. To us, it okay. was a fantastic pun. We loved it. Yeah, and
1: it was bathroom humor. Potty humor is the best. You know, we we personally think that, well, at least my experience is, and I've read a number of articles that seem to agree with me, so they must be right.
0: Oh, yes. They agree with you. Yeah. They must be right. That is, by the way, in behavioral finance, that's called uh, um, confirmation bias.
1: Yes, and I have it. The price to earnings ratio that's, that moves the market is the forward price-to-earnings ratio. And the forward price to earnings ratio is the expected earnings of a company over the next year, and it's pretty accurate when, the, when a company's CEO comes along and makes their earnings report. They generally will give with it an anticipated earnings for the next year, and those are fairly accurate. Uh, much more accurate than the analyst's earnings. Now, once you get out beyond one year, it becomes questionable how accurate it is. So, we generally look at the forward price to earnings ratio of the market. When the forward price to earnings ratio gets too high, that's when we get nervous.
0: So, we just calculated this for March and we came up with an 18.72 as the price to earnings, forward looking price to earnings on a 12 month period for the SP 500. Now, the Schiller PE at the same Valuation period going back instead of forward is a thirty-seven point six. So, which is right, the eighteen point whatever we'll just say eighteen or the thirty-seven? Well, one is double the,
1: the other. And the current ratio, which is looking back a year, is around twenty-six. I think the current price to earnings ratio is, is out of whack because earnings in the first quarter of last year really did stink, and even in the second quarter they stunk to some degree. Because of the pandemic. So looking back one year, the standard price earnings ratio, which is 26 for the S&P 500, I think is very inaccurate at this point.
0: Yeah. So what we're saying here is that each of those readings, you need to know, number one, when somebody quotes you a PE, you need to know, okay, what time period are we looking at? Number two, you need to look at it as a representation of the reality of that time period. So if we're looking back 12 months and we've got a 26, well, that's crazy. That's really high. That's a really high reading because, you know, usually we're talking about 15 to 18 for the last 12 months. That's, that's a reasonably priced market. At 26, it sounds like the market is way, way overpriced. If you don't take into account the fact that we had an absolute shutdown across the entire nation, that has an impact on earnings, just in case you didn't realize that. I think, I think most people understand that. Uh, maybe. Hopefully. So the price to earnings, the earnings got all kinds of whacked. Is it a good representation of the reality of moving forward from this point into the future? No. Unless we have a different... Pandemic, a completely different one that we don't have a vaccine for yet. Uh, which,
1: just as a side note, that's always a possibility. <laughs> it's very, very distinct possibility. We haven't been, we haven't had the the strains that are circulating in India right now, and went, where India went from being a relatively low impact area for COVID nineteen to a major impact area, the leader in the world, which is not something not a role they wanted to play. Um, it's because they've got some new. Variants of the of the of the virus going around that are very highly contagious. We certainly hope that those new variants and those mixtures of variants don't overcome, don't come here. But I suspect eventually they'll be here, and let's hope we get vaccinated before they get here. Yeah, uh, about
0: hmm, probably about ten months ago, we had a talk about India. Um, ten months is a long time to to remember, so I'll just kind of fill you back in. But India has a much younger average population than we do. And there was this thought at the beginning of the pandemic, oh no, India is really in for some trouble because their population is so high. But their average age is much, much lower than the United States. And that gave gave them a great deal of, in essence, herd immunity without being immune. Because the young people might get get it, but they weren't dying from it and they didn't even know they had it in a lot of cases. Well, now this new variant is there that's attacking younger people, and this is the nightmare scenario that we thought was taking place 10, mo- 10 months ago that we're seeing to start take off in India today. So that ha- it isn't that somehow they handled the pandemic better than other people. It was a strict case of their demographics was better suited for the original variant of COVID. I'm not sure that that's interesting to anybody but us. Well,
1: it's, I think it's important to recognize that if people, if we don't get our vaccinations up before the thing comes here, the people who are not vaccinated who think they're okay because they haven't gotten it and they think if, enough, if, I, if somebody else gets vaccinated, it'd be good enough for me. Right. Maybe facing getting one of the variants when it comes along here that's more, that's more dangerous than the ones we've been experiencing here so far. Or at least more dangerous would, for younger people. Well, more dangerous in general too. Yeah. I think it, I think it's important that we get to herd immunity, which is seventy to eighty-five percent of the population. In Texas, so far we've got fifty percent of the population vaccinated, but they're now running out of people to vaccinate because the people who don't want to be vaccinated, and we got to do commercials. Yes, we do. We do.
0: We and we've got lots more to talk about. We really have talked about some basic stuff this time around. We'll probably continue with that as basic as PE is, and a lot of people say that's not basic, Uh, but for considering valuation it is. We'll be back on the other side of some commercials to talk about more stuff. So if you would like to contact us, our email addresses in here are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other side we are back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure on the line with me. I have Jeff McClure. We are both bald, full disclosure. Uh, it's not fully disclosed when we're wearing hat. That is fully closed. There. Just had to let you know. It's an important piece of information. Didn't want you to be surprised later. All right, so some other big news in the market in the economy, not the market, the economy. Um, This week, unemployment claims fell to 553,000. So that's three weeks in a row that were below the 600 mark. This is the first time we've done any week in any row since the beginning of the pandemic below that mark. And to have three weeks in a row like that, it's a real sign that the economy is starting to get back into gear. We, we created a net about 916,000 jobs. That's nearly a million jobs that were created in March. So those are two numbers from different time periods. you got to understand that. One was talking about weekly claims, and the other one was talking about new jobs created in a month. But it's indicative that the, the new layoffs are slowing down And the job creation is speeding up. We're still not back to the employment level we had pre-pandemic by any stretch. We still have a lot of recovery to do before we get there. But we are definitely heading in the right direction.
1: And there's the big news. Oh, what's the big news? The Commerce Department announced the quarterly GDP for the first quarter. Oh, that is big news. 6.4%. Now that... That is very misleading because the Commerce Department, the way we do it in the United States, which is very different from the way they do it, for instance, in China, is we annualize the quarterly return as if it's going to happen all year. It's actually 1.6 percent. It went up in the quarter. I don't know why they don't say for the quarter, the GDP went up 1.6 percent. That's nowhere near as impressive as an annualized rate of 6.4 percent. But that's the way we do it. And um, it's. Went up to 19, by the way, our gross domestic product, which is our profit in the United States after expenses. In other words, the profit that everybody makes, including individuals who work, and the uh, minus inflation, minus the export import uh, imbalance, minus inventory buildup. In other words, if we're drawing down inventories and as those sales don't count, uh, minus a whole bunch of stuff, it comes to $19.1 trillion, which is big. Big. Quite we make big. we have we have by generally accepted accounting principles a 19 point one trillion dollar profit in the quarter well 19 point trillion dollar 19 point one trillion is the level of profit that we're at
0: yeah the quarter. if we were annualizing that so to give you an idea that's really great compared to what we were last year but we're still not up to what we were in 2019
1: yeah we're, we're
0: at 19.3 uh we were at
1: oh that's right 21.4
0: so we've got some extra growth to get back just to where we were that recovery tends to take place faster than growth above where we were before because it's really a matter of taking existing equipment and using it again it's not about manufacturing new stuff and trying to fight the supply chain to get it to the right place in time. And we're going to see some slowdown in growth once we hit total recovery. But I don't think it's going to slow down drastically.
1: Bloomberg is forecasting the second quarter GDP to grow at 9.6% annual. We've already had one month out of behind it, so they've got some pretty good data on that.
0: Yeah, and that 9.6% number, this is directly related to the fact that we really didn't close down the economy until mid-April. So we had half... Uh, well, we had the first quarter uh, was pretty regular last year. The second quarter was horrible. So, anytime you look at your annualized market returns right now or second quarter GDP numbers, you're going to see really big numbers, like numbers I've never seen in my professional career, which now spans 30 years. Uh, when people say we haven't seen numbers like this since the 1960s, they're they're really that was before I was born. It was before you were professionally involved in the marketplace at all. You were in the radio at that point. You yep. Purely radio. Um, and that's that's a statement of amazement. The growth, the, the quickness of the recovery here is because we didn't have infrastructure damage. And this is something we talked about last year at this point, that we had a natural disaster that's occurred. But recovery from this natural disaster should be faster than say Katrina or any of the big hurricanes that hit anywhere in the United States or an earthquake because the infrastructure was not horribly damaged. The only part of our infrastructure that, and I'm gonna use air quotes around this, was damaged, wasn't physical damage. It was misplacement of the supply chain. We had containers in the wrong parts of the world, still do. We have container ships in the wrong parts of the world. We have abandoned container ships all over the planet. How did that happen when the economy, in essence, shut down? If you were the owner of a big container ship that was on its way across the Pacific and you need to get paid when you get there, for the cargo that you're carrying and the payment isn't there when you arrive, you can't afford to pick up new stuff but you still have port fees which means that they can impound your ship and until you get the stuff that's on your ship sold, you can't pay the impound costs. So we have lots and lots of container ships that were operating right at the edge of profitability in good times did not continue to be profitable and have been impounded by different countries all over the world, and they're just sitting there, which is part of the supply chain issue that we have today. The supply ships that are moving are overloaded and are having lots of trouble picking up cargo and dropping off cargo because there's not enough slips for the ones that we actually still have. Uh, Part of that is because the biggest of the cargo ships are usually the ones that didn't get abandoned. But they're also the ones that have the fewest slips available to them. So lots of stuff there. And we're about out of time. would you want to say something to wrap up this hour?
1: Yeah, I think we pretty much got it covered.
0: Cool. Well, we do talk to people off the air. So and we do actually give fiduciary advice off the air. Uh, so if you would like to talk to us and you would like us to talk about managing your portfolio, or or give you advice on business or anything else along those lines where a fiduciary could help, you can contact us. Number one, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com, and there, even if you don't want to talk to us, you can listen to radio programs going back lots of of times. You can go to your favorite podcast provider. We'll be on there, Um, assuming that it's an English-language podcast provider. Uh, you can, on our webpage, you can read our newsletter and sign up for our newsletter. Uh, you can, uh, contact us through the contact form or you can email us directly. And we read these at Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. We really enjoy educating the public. I think that's why we do this. We must be insane a little bit. We feel like the more educated the populace is, the better decisions that they make. And that's better for everybody.